0: Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the word of God against the challenges of men.
1: The bad news bears. Now, we have previously looked at the story of the prophet Elijah. We went through the fact that he appeared before <coughs> the evil King Ahab, proclaimed a drought on the land, and then at God's instruction, hit out by the brook Cherith, and God sent ravens to bring him food. And then after that, he stayed with a widow at Zarephath, where God provided food miraculously for him. And Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead. We have then the drought ending and Elijah calling for his famous showdown with the 400 prophets of Baal. He triumphs over them, wins this great victory over the Baal cult. And that's followed then in chapter 19 by his inexplicable flight into the wilderness after he's threatened by the evil Queen Jezebel. While he's hiding out, God gives him an object lesson. He shows him four signs: strong wind, powerful wind, but the Lord is not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. The earthquake, the Lord is not in the earthquake. After that, a fire, the Lord is not in the fire. After that, a still, small voice. God giving Elijah object lessons that God remains in control. He's not always acting in the spectacular fashion that Elijah expects, but God is in control. Nevertheless, Elijah continues to despair, and God says this to him. He gives him a few final instructions, and then he says, Elisha. The son of Shaphat of Abel Mehola, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. So Elijah is to be replaced, He's to be replaced by Elisha. So Elijah finds Elisha, the son of Shafat, tosses his mantle on him, and Elisha follows him as sir. Elijah seems to be in effect in retirement now until Ahab dies and Ahaziah becomes king in Israel. And when he becomes injured, he seeks help from a false god, Beelzebub. And Elijah rebukes him for doing so. Ahaziah sends out soldiers after him, most likely to arrest him and finally have done with him. It does not end well for them. You know, we read this, the king sent him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. In the order a man of God, the king has said, come down. While God is still able to act in spectacular fashion... Elijah responds, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. You see, if you're out after the people of God and God wants to protect his people, he's able to do it. doesn't matter how many people you bring with him. Ahaziah sends another group of 50 and the same thing happens. And then finally, the third one shows up. They're smart. They're, They're begging for their lives. And the Lord sends Elijah to go with them. And then he faces off with the king and pronounces doom on him. Because you sent messengers to Baal, Zabub, the god of Ekron. Is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he did. And that pretty much is the end of the career of Elijah. And soon after that... Elisha is with him when Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, the men of the place, they're not sure Elijah's really gone. They think maybe God just deposited him on a nearby mountain or something. And they insist on spending three days looking for him. But of course, they don't find him. And at that point, Elisha begins his ministry, and it begins like this. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad and the ground barren. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria, 2 Kings 2, 19-25. Bad news bears indeed. This particular part of the account, the part with the bears, the part with the youths, this has become a big apologetics issue to atheist skeptics. None of them seems to to care at all about the 102 people consumed by fire from heaven shortly before, but for some reason, they take umbrage at the idea of bears attacking the youths, especially if you look at it in the old King James Version, which translates that as there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him, and there came forth two sheep bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them, and wow, children, That looks really, really bad. Now, it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not that atheists actually care about babies being killed. Atheists are all about killing babies. They have no problem killing them even for their own convenience. And they're certainly not consistent in their worldview. As Darwinists, they believe that humans are just evolved animals. So, a bear taking out a youth really shouldn't bother them any more than, say, a bear taking out a fish. Nevertheless, this story is just too good for atheists to pass up when it comes to attacking the Bible, to show that the Bible is immoral, that God is evil. And so, apologists have felt constrained to answer this. Because from our point of view, we do care about human life. We do not believe that we are just evolved animals. And Atheist skeptics are attacking the Bible for this. So what can we say about this story? Well, what the apologists generally try to argue is that what you see is not really what you get. If you read the story as is, well, yes, it really sounds bad, but if you look a little more carefully, you read between the lines, you do some good exegesis, and really it's not that bad after <laughs> all. First, I will point out that these, these little children are, are not really little children, youths, but, you know, that's still not so nice. Okay, if we say the words translate youths more accurately, teenagers or young adults, well, but that's still not so nice, right? So how about this? A gang of young hoodlums of various ages led by the older ones, with all of them no doubt instigated by the pagan priests and idolatrous citizens of Bethel. Ooh, okay, that that's, might be better. Well, how about this? The context suggests that these are not children, but Levites of the idolatrous shrine. And then that becomes this, a large band of hostile adult priests serving the idolatrous shrine of the Northern Temple in Israel. Isn't that interesting? And it goes from youths to teenagers, young adults to young hoodlums instigated by pagan priests. So the actual Levites themselves, which then morphs into a large band of hostile adult priests. And you just kind of might sense that there's some shenanigans going on here. This is not real proper exegesis. So if you look at the Hebrew there, Na'arim, Kitanim, yeah, youths, you could probably youths would do it. There's nothing in there to suggest they are hostile adult priests, gang of young hoodlums, or let alone Levites. So you wonder how we got from there to there. Now, Na'ar, can refer to a male anywhere from infant up to maybe 17 years old or even older. Katan does mean small or young or perhaps insignificant. So, as I say, youth is, is probably an okay translation. It doesn't have to be little children the way the King James has it. But the rest of these claims, there are no grounds at all for them. Seems to be that they're trying to make the account more palatable for the atheist skeptics. It's not the only place where they do it. You go on to the next line about the, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Now, that's some insult that I could possibly take umbrage with myself. But the apologists will tell us, oh, it's not just an insult, you see. They're not just mocking him. They're telling Elisha to ascend like Elijah and get out of here. It's an insult to God. God has to respond. And Elisha's role is so important. He needs to establish his authority. But does he need to do it with bears? Elijah didn't establish his authority with bears. Elisha's credibility was that he washed the hands of his master, Elijah. Not, had nothing to do with bears. But again, we're we're trying to make it sound better. And then there's this part, okay? The, The bears came out and mauled 42 of the youths. Well, uh, really, maybe they weren't badly hurt. Maybe they were just a little scratches. After all, I mean, there's 42 of them. They must have been staying and fighting instead of wisely running away. It's probably their fault, you see. You know? it's, uh, really, what happened, it's on them, isn't it? Hmm. So there you go. There's your Christian apologetic response to the bad news bears. Youth doesn't really mean youths. Go up, you bald head, isn't really just an insult mauled doesn't really mean mauled. 42 means the youth decided to stand and fight, and that's why they got scratched. It's on them. Problem solved, right? Does that sound reasonable to any of you? Do you think this will convince the atheist skeptics? Are they going to listen to this and say, oh yeah, okay, that's, that's all right then? I don't think so. Let's look at a particularly egregious attempt at such apologetics by, from a well-known apologetics ministry and interspersed some actual responses made to these arguments by atheists. The mauling of the 42 youths is a mainstay of the atrocities list. Once again, the context will show that this is not an unreasonable act at all. Oh, this should be good. The context of feeding Christians to lions will show that this was not an unreasonable act at all. Uh, just says, first of all, the word that is translated youths more accurately means teenagers or young adults. So 42 people mauled is still 42 people mauled, which, of course, makes it all acceptable. It's not like teenagers or young adults would mind being mauled by bears. So another atheist, thanks for clearing that up. It's just a matter of the correct emphasis. Instead of God send two bears to maul 42 youths, it's God send two bears to maul 42 youths. I can feel the God love now. 42 of the young men are mauled. The word can refer to an injury as minor as a scratch. Okay, first off, the definition of mauled basically means severe injury. Second, I'd like to see you try and fight off a grizzly empty-handed. Injury is minor as minor is a scratch. No, it doesn't. And whoever heard of a bear attack resulting in a light scratch? Miners are scratched because 42 people getting mildly scratched by God's cute teddy bears obviously warrants mention in an epic tale for the ages. Oh, I like this one that two bears were able to injure so many indicates that the youths were fighting the bears and didn't scatter. The bears in Israel at that time were much smaller than the brown bears that one is used to seeing in nature shows, and two of them would not have been able to maul 42 of the youths unless they had been trying to fight the bears instead of scattering. Or the youth were paralyzed by the terror that is God's bears and could do nothing but get mauled by God's awesome bears of retribution. Speculation always works. There is no basis for the claim that brown bears at that time were much smaller than now. They were close to the size of grizzly bears then and now. Ooh, furthermore, see it is on them. Furthermore, in the ancient world, what were 42 young men doing idle? They should have been helping their families. They were dangerous juvenile delinquents. A modern-day equivalent would be finding oneself in a shady, abandoned part of town, and a gang of young thugs starts jeering. (laughs) Atheist responds, so you're advocating bear mauling young thugs in shady parts of town these days. Too fascinating. Or actually, a modern-day equivalent would be finding oneself in a shady, abandoned part of town, and a gang of young thugs starts jeering, and then you curse them in God's name, and 42 bears miss them up for you. A nice way to blame the victims at the end. They were a bunch of juvenile delinquents, so they deserve to be lost. And then this response <laughs> Oh, she's serious. It doesn't seem this sort of apologetic approach really works with atheists and skeptics. Frankly, I find it a little embarrassing to go that route. It doesn't work and it can't work. And the reason it can't work is because they're not really troubled by the issue. They're not looking for a reasoned answer. It is an excuse to avoid facing the reality of God. So whatever answer you're going to give them, it's not going to matter. They say this is bad, this is wrong. They have no absolute standard for saying it's wrong. Why is it different from a bear eating a fish? Well, they can't give you an answer, but they're going to double down on that. But here, here's the thing: this sort of apologetic has another downside to it. And it's a much more serious one, in my opinion. Look at these other comments. The rest is just idle speculation. If you have to rewrite the Bible to believe in it, then you don't believe in the Bible. I've never seen someone use the lost in translation defense of the Bible so much in one paragraph. She is more or less as driving a nail in the coffin of the old tirade of the Bible's absolutely inerrant printed in their FAQ, by the way, by trying to say that what is described is unreasonable and therefore wouldn't actually happen rather bizarre for someone who appears to be a literalist. So here's a problem. Not only do we not persuade the atheist, we're sending a message that we don't really believe the Bible ourselves. Yeah, it is too horrible. Let's redefine it make it okay for the atheists. How is that working out for us? So the mistake here is trying to explain such accounts in such a way that atheists will say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's okay then, and watering it down. And we have to ask, is that what Jesus did? Is that what Jesus did? Because is it, is, it is the approach we're supposed to take nowadays. Here's this account here, There were present at that season, some who told them about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This was one of those atrocities committed by Pontius Pilate, where the soldiers attack a group of Galileans, perhaps he thought they were rebelling, and massacred them. It's terrible. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did this happen? What are we supposed to say about bad things? We're supposed to say, I don't know why it happened. God was there with them. God was drying their tears. God was bearing them up. It rarely works. The people say, oh, God is there, why didn't he stop it? Rather than just wipe our tears. That's how we're supposed to answer. It's not how Jesus answered. Jesus answered. Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Ooh, that's not what we're supposed to be saying. We're not supposed to be explaining how well we don't know. But God just you know, loves you like a in you know, a pieces, like a senile grandfather. He's never going really to want knowingly let bad things happen to you. Well, look what Jesus said. And he doubled down on it. He brought up another one they didn't even bring up. Those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's no attempt on the part of Jesus to ameliorate these. They're they're bad stories. They're bad things. But they're reality. Jesus doesn't pretend otherwise. He points out the wrath of God is an awesome thing. And he keeps bringing up more examples. Luke chapter 17, uh, he continues, says, in the days of Noah. So it will be also in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It's a lot more than 42 of them. Likewise, as it was also the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. He's consistent about that, folks. He does not try to water down the wrath of God. Atheists may not like this. It doesn't matter. The wrath of God is real. And we have to give fair warning. Why do you think John the Baptist gave this warning in his ministry? But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. There is wrath coming. So if you have not gotten right with God through putting your faith in Jesus, don't put it off. It's not our job to try to hide this from people. It's not our mission to pretend that God is a senile grandfather who just loves everybody to pieces and will never execute judgment on them because he will. And we have to give them fair warning. If we don't, their blood will be on our hands. Wrath is coming folks, maybe sooner than you realize. It's time to get right with God. If you haven't done it yet, if you have not put your faith in Jesus truly, not just lip service folks, not just getting baptized in water, If you have not actually put your faith in Jesus, I suggest you not put it off. Let's look at that story of Elisha and the bad news bears again. The whole passage. People like to leave out the first four verses and go right to the bad news bears. But do notice what happens. Elisha. Taking up the mantle of Elijah is on his way to Bethel, which is one of the two sites of pagan worship in in the northern kingdom of Israel. The two priestly cities of the golden calves and the spiritual adultery of Israel against God. And what happens? It's on his way. He's confronted by people who are pointing out that the water is bad. The ground is barren. They're appealing to Alicia. What does he do? He heals the water. How many lives does that save? Many, no doubt. The first thing Alicia does is a blessing. Because that's what they're asking for. They're asking for the true God's blessing and they receive it. The second part, the part that the atheists want to focus on are those who refuse the true God, who follow false gods, doesn't go well for them. They want nothing these people want nothing to do with God's prophet. They will not receive them. He curses them. Is that unto works? Is that something you should not have done? Well, we might say, yeah, you shouldn't do that. that's 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 not kosher, that's not good. And yet that's what Jesus told us to do. He told his disciples to do this some nine hundred years later. When he sends them out on their preaching mission in Mark chapter six, verses 10 to eleven, Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. As a form, it's it's an object way of cursing them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Elisha is doing only what Jesus would command his disciples to do some 900 years later. We need to take this seriously, folks. Notice that neither Elisha nor the disciples have any power to curse as if the curse itself were efficacious. It is simply a progress assessment, a progress report sent to God, and he will take it from there. And so what happens next? Well, bears come out of the woods. Was it a result of the curse? Well, the text doesn't tell us. There's there's no therefore there. There's no Achaian in the text saying that the bears came because of the curse. This could simply be a natural consequence of their behavior. We're not used to having to beware of predators here in big cities. But the ancient Israelites did have to be. There were several around that were an ever-present threat. There were lions, and that was the most dangerous. There were leopards, wolves, and yeah, Bears. You have to be careful of these things. If, if you're a bunch of youths, you don't go out. You shouldn't go out of your city without some armed men to protect you. But it seems that they, they were just so eager to rag on the prophet of God, they, they stopped thinking, and they rushed out without finding armed men to go with them as bodyguards. This may not have been a punishment per se, but a natural consequence of bad choices, like getting hit by a car when playing in traffic and refusing the protective love of the one true God. And yeah, they were mauled, they were wounded, but not one is said to have been killed. So if this was a wake-up call that they needed to turn them to the one true God, it was worth it, wasn't it? And Jesus did say, it is better for you to enter into life maimed, rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Hard business, but it's your ultimate destiny that's more important than anything else. As I said, you look at the whole story, it begins with blessing. Those who accepted Elisha as God's prophet and had faith were blessed. The bad result came afterward to those who made themselves enemies of God. Because he doesn't owe anyone anything, including protection against bears. It's the same for the youth in the story, for the cackling atheists we heard from, and for us. We can be God's friends, or we can be his enemies. It's our choice. The wise choice is to become his friends. If we refuse that, don't blame God for the consequences. Next time an atheist brings up the bears, might be interested to say to them, do you think those 42 youths were worse sinners than you? So unless you repent, you will likewise perish and watch their heads explode.
0: Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you.